Thank you so much for coming to Global Rights for Women conversation series, Valiant Voices. I'm Cheryl Thomas, pronouns she, her, and will be today's moderator. I'm the executive director of Global Rights for Women, an organization we founded in 2014 with a laser focus on working with partners around the world to achieve systemic and legal reform to ensure women and girls' human right to be free from violence. Valiant Voice is a conversation series created by Global Rights for Women just this year during the COVID pandemic. And we feature human rights advocates and survivors addressing injustice and understanding the intersectionality of oppressions and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. So the series features the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. So I'm going to introduce all of our guests right now. I am just beyond delighted and so honored to introduce you to these um, three amazing panelists. I'll start with Jess Braverman. She's the legal director at Gender Justice, wherein she ensures their litigation strategy not only pr promotes the dignity of their clients, but also advances a systemic mission to remove barriers to gender equality. Jess came to Gender Justice from the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office, and after representing hundreds of clients in felony matters in the fourth district, she spearheaded the office's special litigation unit, where she focused on racial profiling um, in policing. We are really honored to have you, Jess. Thanks for being here. And there, yes. And Erin May Quaid is the advocacy director at Gender Justice, where she works to advance justice through public education, legislative outreach, strategic partnerships, and coalition building. It is so important for us, those of us working on human rights. We can't do it alone. She's a former Minnesota state representative who was first elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives in 2016. We were really delighted to feature you, Erin, at our 2017 annual event at Global Rights for Women. There in the legislature, she quickly established herself as a candid and fierce advocate for Minnesotans championing paid family leave, expanding access to affordable childcare, gun, addressing gun violence, and so much more. Thank you for your all that work on laws. Erin. In 2018, Erin uh, founded the Childhood Hunger Caucus. And in 2018, Representative May Quay became the first LGBTQ person and among the youngest to be endorsed as the DFL candidate for, as, by the DFL as the candidate for Lieutenant Governor. Wow. <laughs> and wonderful. So, and Andrea Jenkins, thank you so much for being with us here today. We are just so honored. Andrea is the vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. She's a writer, performance artist, poet, and transgender activist, and she's the first African-American openly trans woman to be elected to office in the United States of America. Wow. <laughs> just wonderful. That's just, just incredible to say that. Jenkins moved to Minnesota to attend the University of Minnesota in 1979 and worked with the city council for 12 years before holding your leadership office. I think I've got that, that right. She is a nationally and internationally recognized writer and artist, a 2011 Bush Fellow to advance 
the work of transgender inclusion and the recipient of just numerous awards and fellowships. Too many to, to take up her time here right now, honestly, we wanna hear from her. In 2018, she completed the senior executives in state and local government program at Harvard University. So welcome, welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Yes, and you are, um, we are gonna start it now with questions for each one of you, but we, as we've talked about before, when we prepared, please jump in. I, I know you will all, you all have um, so much to um, say and share with our participants. So we, we just really welcome the discussion. Jess, your legal advocacy has most recently focused on litigation on behalf of non-binary and transgender people and is specifically around bathroom policies and also around um, uh, youth in sports or sports generally and the laws that are, are happening or the bills I should say that are happening around the, the United States and they've been pushed not just by conservatives but by so-called feminist groups on the, under the auspices of protecting the safety of women. And we know it's, that's not based in fact, it's just an excuse for further oppression and I would um, just really appreciate it if you would talk about um, the impact of that kind of harmful anti-transgender legislation and you know, based on all that uh, the lack of evidence and how that just impacts our, all of our efforts to promote human rights. So yeah, go for it, Jess. Yeah, thank you, Cheryl. And thank you to uh, Global Rights for Women and to Aaron and Andrea. Um, I'm, I'm just so lucky to be on a panel with both of you. Um, I wanna give a little background about what gender justice does just for context. Um, so we, our mission is that we advance gender equity through the law. Um, as a legal director, Aaron can talk about um, the advocacy uh, department of gender justice. Um, we bring lawsuits, we represent, um, we represent a variety of people where we where the root of the issue is gender-based oppression, patriarchy, things along those lines. So um, yes, we represent transgender students who are discriminated against in school. We have schools that refuse to let trans students use the correct bathrooms and locker rooms. And by correct, I mean the bathrooms and locker rooms that the students wish to use. <laughs> um, that is the correct one. Um, and so we have schools forcing um, you know, trans boys not to use boys locker rooms, trans girls not to use girls locker rooms, things along those lines. So we represent students in those contexts. Um, we represent people who are denied uh, access to health insurance, which effectively means often access to health care period. Um, so people who need gender affirming care, it's hard enough to to get approval for insurance to cover that, but then you have insurance companies who have explicit just just bars and denials and, and not only make it impossible, like literally say you cannot get this care under insurance. Um, we've brought lawsuits for that and have been successful. Um, but we also represent, um, you know, we, we represent an abortion fund, the first Unitarian Society, um, and two providers against the state in an abortion lawsuit. Um, we represent a woman in rural Minnesota whose pharmacist refused to fill her prescription for emergency contraception because of his religious beliefs. Um, and we don't believe these are like, it's not like gender justice has like the LGBTQ unit and the repro unit. We see these issues as intimately connected and we do them all together. We don't silo this work because we don't think they're different issues. Um, 
they might require um, different or more nuanced competencies, but they're not like separate issues that you can deal with in a bucket. Um, and I think the fact that we, we separate these issues out is part of the problem in itself. Um, and so I'm gonna do a tiny bit of, of 101, but I, I do this with a caveat. I don't even like to do this all that much. Everyone's identity is different and nothing, it's hard to fit people into something that looks like a 101. Um, so I'm going to do this just so that folks understand what I'm talking about and have a kind of base level understanding, but, but I don't want the takeaway to be like, if I meet someone, I understand from just as one-on-one that like, this is their identity, you know, listen to folks, listen to what they say, um, listen to it from them. I just want to make sure people can kind of understand basically what I'm, what I'm talking about as I talk. I, I hope that makes sense. Um, so if I'm talking about, let's say a trans boy, a trans student, who's a boy, um, that is someone who was assigned uh, male at birth. So, so doctors assign people on their birth certificate, male or female. Um, and it's based usually on external genitalia and not the host of things that make up someone's sex or gender. There are a lot of things that go into that. And you will hear people say things like, oh, chromosomes, DNA, you know, the, you, you really cannot reduce sex and gender to these things. Um, and that's not just me being uh, fanciful, like, you know, doc, like the scientists, doctors, we're going to talk a little bit about the different organizations that fully support this and have more nuanced views on sex and gender. But usually your sex assigned at birth is usually often based on external genitalia. Um, so when I was born, a uh, doctor looked at my external genitalia, put an F on my birth certificate, right? Assigned female at birth. Um, but a lot of people don't identify with that. Um, and people might, you might have um, someone who identifies as a transgender boy. He identifies as a boy, regardless of what that sex assigned at birth was on the birth certificate. Um, and so I hope, I hope that's just helpful. Um, and then there's transitions, different people transition differently and it's not a hierarchy of transitions. Um, some people socially transition, right? So you might um, uh, base your clothes, your hair, your, your appearance, your name, all these things on what uh, works for you in terms of how you want people to address you, to see you, that sort of thing. Um, but again, social, that, that's a really, this is oversimplifying it. Medical transition is you might take uh, hormones or um, others have surgeries, right? That, that's often what we refer to as medical transitions. And, and the last caveat again, grain of salt, different people's life experiences can't really be reduced to a 101. Um, so across the country right now, we're seeing state attacks in state, legislator, state legislatures um, targeting transgender youth. And I want to talk about these bills, who's pushing them, what their goals are, and all of that. Um, but I first just want to make sure that we're clear on something. Um, transgender youth are being painted as like a new, a new fad. We're hearing phrases like rapid onset gender dysphoria, experimental treatment. Um, and I just want to be clear, like just because something sounds new to someone doesn't mean it is new. <laughs> um, transgender youth are not new. Um, medical, uh, medical care for transgender youth is not experimental or new or like something doctors are unsure of. Um, transgender youth and transgender people have been around for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, I, I do a little bit of a disservice. Can I say since the beginning of time, Jess? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the, the, the const right, it's all a construct, right? And there's, there's people who, who could do a much better job than me in talking about the impact of like colonialism in really uh, cementing these, you know, male, female gender roles. But yeah, thank you, Andrea. Absolutely. Like it's, it's, people have lived their lives and then what's happened is like people have come along and categorized people and it doesn't work 
um, and, and gender. It goes in and out too. I mean, it, it, many times they haven't been so oppressed as we're experiencing right now. Would you say that, Jess? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends, right? It depends. You know, it. Yeah, it depends where you where you're where you're talking about who you're talking about. And I and I absolutely encourage Andrea and Aaron to continue to jump in. Like, if yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, no, there are many communities and societies throughout the world that have been and continue to be very um, inclusive of trans and gender non-conforming identities, uh, and and those those people play a, a really important role in many societies. Yeah. And, and then there's the extreme where we have 69 countries in the world that now criminalize same-sex relations or other forms of uh, gender expression and seven that provide the death penalty for that. And, no, that's and, real. Yeah. And, and we're gonna, I'm, I'm definitely gonna mention too, like how this is seeping into the human rights conversation specifically too um you know in in the um in the context of you know the un and other other places like that um but you know so just again just because something sounds new to you doesn't mean it is new um transgender thank you andrew transgender people are not new transgender youth are not new Rap, rapid onset gender dysphoria is not a real medical phrase um it's used it's it's pushed by people who have books to sell right um i remember when I came out in the nineties as gay and everyone was like, it's a phase or it's a fad or it's a, you know, it, it okay, well, I'm still gay. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like the satanic panic, you know, it's, it's this thing that people have heard one person's life story, two people's life stories and decided like, I'm going to create a whole like world and narrative around this. Um, so, so the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, and the Endocrine Society are among the many prominent medical organizations um, calling for state legislators to stop messing with medical care for transgender youth. Um, they're saying this is not new, this is not experimental, and it's also not a problem. Um, the legislators are, are creating the problem. Um, so the types of bills we're seeing right now are um, one big one we're seeing is sports trying to prevent um, trans youth from it, it effectively prevents trans youth from playing sports. It would prevent trans girls from playing on girls teams is, is the most common um, thing we're seeing. And it's being presented as um, trans girls are, are, are threat. They're, they're, think about this, right? What they're saying is like trans girl. Yes. <laughs> what they're saying is like trans girls are taking away, they're, they're so much better than cisgender girls. Um, they use offensive terms that I hope not to hear people here use like biological male, right? They're trying to, they're, they're trying to erase people's identities. They're trying, it's purposeful and it's hateful, right? But this is a phrase they use, are better at sports, are better at fitness than cisgender girls and are going to take away opportunities from cisgender girls. And inherent in that is this idea that like cisgender, we should be like, everyone should be offended by this, right? Like cisgender girls are not weak. Cisgender girls are not terrible at sports. Um, and so, oh, thank you. The three minute warning. Um, and so um, there's other bills that are going on. Um, oh, the, the thing that's worth noting is like one thing they often say is you're taking away NCAA scholarships, blah, blah, you know, things like that. Um, transgender girls, it's really hard for them to get NCAA scholarships. These are not even, they're not merit-based and they're not need-based. Um, they're based on like coaches, doing recruiting, right? And so the question is, who is a coach gonna recruit? Um, it, coaches are not, unfortunately, not recruiting transgender girl athletes. And e despite the fact that trans inclusion has been 
We've had trans inclusion in the Olympics, the NCAA, Minnesota High School League, right? Trans inclusion in sports is not new, um, but it's being painted as a new thing that's going to tear apart women's sports. But we, we know from experience that that has not happened. It will not happen. And even if it did, it's not an excuse to be discriminatory. Um, it means we probably need to change how we do sports. Um, we see a bill is making it a felony to provide gender affirming care for youth, um, calling any parent who um, gets gender affirming care for their child a child abuser. Um, and forcing them to go through CPS proceedings. Um, we saw the governor of Texas get involved in a private custody matter um, between two parents, um, siding against the mother and calling CPS on her for getting gender affirming care for her child. Um, we, we also see like, if any school mentions an LGBTQ person or issue that they have to give the parent 30 days to opt out. We've seen laws that would require schools to report any child who is gender nonconforming, which is like all of us. I don't know, like it's certainly me. I like I, I don't know what what it's just pretty awful. Um, so what I want folks to look out for, um, and this is appearing in the human rights world as um, I think it's they're, they're referring to it as things like sex-based rights. Um, and then they're referring to gender ideology. As though this isn't like people's lived lives, it's like a philosophical thing that's being pushed on kids. And, and that's just absolutely not true. So those are some buzzwords I'd like folks in the human rights world to start looking out for. Like sex-based rights, I mean, think about it. Who wants that? Who wants to be defined by their like genitalia and have that limit how you live your life, right? But there's people who are under the, the banner of feminism saying this is this is what we want. And what it is, is just transphobia. And so I'm hoping when, when you know, with what limited time I have, um, I just wanna really urge people to listen for these kind of um, dog whistles, this idea that anything about trans inclusion, this idea that anything about reducing discrimination is harmful to cis women. Um, usually it's, it's actually that effort that's harmful to cis women because it pushes uh, cis women into certain roles. It limits um, what you can and can't do. And these bills are being pushed both nationally and internationally by groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and others who are anti-reproductive rights, anti-bodily autonomy, they're Christian supremacists, they, they're white supremacists. So, you know, if you look at, if you really look closely at the, the ideas they're espousing, they want everyone to live a very certain way. So, um, they, I, you know, just take it. I hope that's a... to you forever, Jess. No, no, no. I'm done. Thank you, thank you so much. And you know, when you say you know, the internationally, it's so true. We see in our work. We talked about the Istanbul Convention, which is this really strong treaty on violence against women that's just being rolled back. And and the the issue is um, gen gender. Um, and it's it's completely an anti-gender. It's not about um, protecting women at all. Gender ideology is being demonized in, or that's how they're characterizing this whole, this whole um, movement to take back this powerful treaty, their commitments to the powerful treaty in countries around the world. So I'm so yeah. grateful to you. I'm so grateful for your use of the law. Andrea. Well, I, I, I wanted to just kind of come in a little bit on Jess's um, talk about um, trans athletes, et cetera, and just how disingenuous the argument is that, um, you know, women athletes are being somehow um, disadvantaged by, by trans athletes. Um, first of all, trans women are women. So let's start from that premise. But, um, you know, the, the treatment of just women's sports is abysmally un, 
equitable as we saw just in the most recent um, NCAA tournaments where women's athlete, uh, women's athletic facilities were yes. at best one eighth of the, um, the male facilities. Women athletes are still fighting for um, equal pay, they are paid one eighth of the salaries that male athletes make uh, in professional sports. And we're talking about professional athletes. Um, and so the disingenuousness of this, you know, equality in women's sports is, is just really um, um, mind boggling and, and very much gaslighting in my opinion. Right, right. Right, thank you for that, Andrew. Erin, let's go to you for a minute. You've been such a strong proponent of body autonomy and reproductive justice and framework developed by Black women with the four principles, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, the right to raise children in safe and thriving communities, gender freedom and bodily autonomy. Talk about how, please, Erin, um, one's own reproductive destiny is so directly linked to the conditions in a community and how it's yeah. so key to the liberation of women. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, the conversation we were just having about trans inclusion in sports is certainly tied to reproductive justice. And so, yep. you know, reproductive justice is an organizing framework um, that arose from Black women in the 90s who actually had returned from a, a conference in the international, um, as an international human rights conference in Cairo, and they were working on centering a human rights concept and bringing in the human rights framework to expand kind of how we think about reproductive rights. So reproductive justice rights splices reproductive rights and social justice together. And it does, it analyzes the ability of a person to determine their own reproductive destiny and how that's linked directly to the conditions of their community. And it makes it so that, um, you know, the way we talk about abortion sometimes is like about choice, right? I'm pro-choice, my body, my choice. And that really, uh, that false narrative offers up abortion access as like an equal and opposite choice to, to carrying, determine, giving birth. And one of the things that reproductive justice does is it, it de-isolates, it de-silos abortion from the broader movement for justice. You know, we know that you cannot decide to become a parent or not, or be a parent or not become a parent or live in safe and thriving and sustainable communities or have gender freedom and bodily autonomy if you can't decide to not have a child. If you can't decide to have a child, if you cannot live freely as who you are. And so, uh, you know, we know that uh, queer, trans, BIPOC people have been living reproductive justice for much longer than the term has been around, certainly. But this organizing framework has, you know, it started in the 90s and then grew throughout um, Sister Song. And so we uh, at Gender Justice, you know, we advance gender equity through the law. And one of the things that we are continuing to do in Minnesota is, you know, we're suing the state right now to remove the abortion restrictions that exist in law. We're also working on trans inclusion in sports. And those two things are both reproductive justice. And, and the, the opponents are the same, right? The, the same people who are pushing uh, to restrict access to abortion care and all reproductive health care to force people to carry, uh, you know, a child to term and give birth, which is state violence, right? And one of the 
the principles of reproductive justice is to live free from violence in your communities, both from the state and the individual. And so when we think about uh, the murder of George Floyd or the killing of Dante Wright or, you know, Micaiah Bryant and, you know, on and on and on, right? We can continue to name names literally every day. That is violence from the state. And part of reproductive justice means we get to leave, live free from violence from the state. Um, but we, you know, so we're doing work in abortion rights, but we're also doing work in trans inclusion and sports because we know that this like biological essentialism, the classifying of who is and isn't a real woman, who gets to make decisions about their own bodies, who gets to dress and look and act the way that they are um, is highly, highly uh, regulated and oppressed by the same people. And I do just want to note too, that when we're talking about um, both when it comes to reproductive justice and when we're talking about uh, trans inclusion and, and community, there is always a racial overtone to that, right? The, the Venn diagram of anti-abortion extremists and white supremacists is basically a full circle. And you will find that same ideology and you will find that same racial overtone when you hear people talk about um, trans women athletes, right? Black women and brown women are used to be calling not feminine and not real women and, and cheating at sports or like being too good, right? And so again, it, it just is all tied together. And sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes it's so tied together in my mind that I'm like jumping from thing to thing, but it is all reproductive of justice. And so we cannot um, have liberation. We cannot live freely in this world until we achieve full reproductive justice. And that includes the ability to have a child, not have a child, raise children, and live freely in safe and sustainable communities and have gender freedom and bodily autonomy. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Erin. The thinking that you, 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 you guys at Gender Justice are doing on this, I, I really believe from my experience is just, just huge leadership that you're offering Minnesota and the United States and the world. So I'm um, so grateful to listen to you. Thank you. Uh, now I wanna just say quickly before we go on to Andrea uh, with, a, with a question um, that we are putting resources in the chat and there's, there's terminology that's explained uh, because we just, you know, don't don't have the time we'd love to have. Uh, but please do put your questions in the chat also as you think of them. And we're going to move on. Andrea, you have been a spectacular leader as both an artist and a politician. What a fabulous combination that is. And thanks to people like yourself, you're raising awareness and achieving significant political victories and transgender voices are being heard. Yet transgender people, especially trans women of color, continue to face such blatant discrimination and high levels of violence, really disproportionate violence, as they navigate all the multiple systems of oppression and health and economics and safety and civil rights that we've been talking about. So just quickly, I'd like to share some statistics with our audience today from the US Transgender Survey. 47% of trans women of color have lost a job due to bias. That statistic is 27% for trans people overall. An appalling statistic in and out of, of itself, 49% of trans women of color have been evicted and denied housing. 48% have experienced inter intimate partner violence and one in four avoided staying in a shelter due to fears of being mistreated for being transgender. Not an unrealistic fear, given that 74% have experienced mistreatment. All of these rates are close to quadruple that of the general population. 
And we know, all of us know in this work that statistics about violence are all almost always underreported and because of fear and safety and shame and all, all these things that we know. Um, so we've heard from Jess and Aaron that there's a lot of, do, of work to do to protect the rights and safety of non-binary and, and transgender people. And I want to hear from you now, Andrea, please. What are your priorities in the work you are doing? And talk to our audience, please, about how we can advocate for equality and, and ensure the rights of our transgender neighbors, coworkers, friends, family. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, thank you so much, Cheryl, um, and to the Global um, Rights for Women organization, as well as, um, you know, just so honored to be on this panel with, um, with Aaron and Jess from Gender Justice, and really the frame that they, that Gender Justice puts on gender rights, it, it does not um, exclude or separate um, as, as just mentioned um, early on in their comments, um, you know, we have a trans sort of department over here and then all our other gender work happens over here. It's, it's intersectional. And, um, and that is also from a black women's feminist framework uh, that, that all of our, none of us live single issue lives, right? We all have multiple issues and certainly that is a reality for trans and gender non-conforming people and even more so for um, trans and gender non-conforming people of color. Um, you know, you, I, I guess I will start by just highlighting the most recent current events. So last night we heard from President Biden and for the first time in ever in my history of watching a quasi state of the union, I don't know, Aaron, was it a state of the union or not? That's the debate joint, on Twitter. It was a joint address. <laughs> right. Well, in that joint address, the president- Aaron's our legislative expert. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All things legislative, go to but the the president literally called out to transgender Americans and said, "We see you and we stand with you." Um, you know, and in 2014, um, Joe Biden, as vice president, said, uh, "Transgender rights are the civil rights um, issue." of our time and um you know and so to hear him as president carry that forward um i, th I think really meant a lot to uh the trans community um and transgender people and and i think set a tone for um how you know other um, legislators across the country can fight back against some of these um, um, proposals, knowing that they have the backing of the White House. Um, in 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 his first day in office, I mean, he restored transgender people's rights to serve in the military. I don't particularly um, support war, or you know. 
or the trillions of dollars that go into our war effort that really takes resources away from our communities. However, if we are to have a volunteer army, and the key word is volunteer, um, that transgender people as human beings, as citizens of this country, as um, fully contributing members to our society should have a right to serve in that um, uh, body as well. And so um, there is a lot of hope coming from the uh, Biden administration as it relates to, um, to trans women. Um, in fact, um, the Assistant Secretary of Health is a transgender woman and was confirmed by the Senate, which is another historical first, um, the first trans woman to ever be um, confirmed by the, by the United States Senate. But the atrocious um, disproportional violence that you mentioned, Cheryl, is, is really, you know, as, as we continue to see these uh, progressive um, initiatives, you know, as evidenced by myself being elected as a city council member in the city of Minneapolis, there's always a backlash. And the backlash so always falls on um, trans people of color um, as the most visible members of the LGBT community, even, even when there are rights, like when, when the Marriage Equality Act um, passed in the, the Supreme Court, and, and I will want to just acknowledge that um, we legislatively passed it in the state of Minnesota prior to that. Thank you, uh, Representative Aaron Maykwade for, uh, for helping to bring that into fruition. Um, but even with that, the backlash was not necessarily against LGBT or LGB people per se, it was trans women of color who really uh, took the brunt of the backlash. And that is always, as because we're- Say more about that, would you, Andrea? Well, I just think we're, you know, the most visible. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm black. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm six feet two, which is kind of a, a, a reality for a lot of trans and, um, gender non-conforming women. Uh, and so we really stand out and um, and, and then are, are more susceptible. Uh, the, the issues that you, the statistics that you talked about around housing, around employment, around access to education, those again are in interrelated um, with race, right? And so black and brown uh, people, undocumented people are already experiencing um, inequities in our culture and society. And then you layer on gender nonconformity or um, a uh, different gender identity than what was assigned at birth. And um, people have um, even more, um, um, burdens 
right. on there and, and become more susceptible to the violence. I really absolutely believe that, um, that housing, um, access to housing, access to employment are the main reasons why uh, trans and gender nonconforming women of color are suffering from so much violence, which is why my work um, is around really trying to create housing opportunities, stable housing opportunities, uh, and job training opportunities uh, for trans and gender nonconforming people. And so I've been working with the Minnesota Transgender Health Coalition um, to, um, to build and create um, housing opportunities for trans and gender nonconforming people. I'm working with our training and employment um, division at the city of Minneapolis to, to create and develop uh, trans-specific job training opportunities um, because those just do not exist in, in our community. They do in other communities, uh, Washington, DC, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, they all do a really great job at, um, at addressing some of those issues. Um, and so we need to bring that to the forefront here in Minneapolis. We do have, um, I was, um, you know, in my many years of working in City Hall, as you noted, Cheryl, um, we were able to eight years ago start the Transgender Equity Summit. Right. which is a, um, a community uh, event um, aimed specifically at the trans and gender nonconforming uh, community throughout the state to really talk about what resources are available to provide support, to provide um, networking opportunities and community building opportunities. One of the challenges with trans and gender nonconforming people is that they are really isolated in many ways. Um, and that has changed over time as the, you know, popularity of uh, the internet and social media has grown. Uh, but still, there is a lot of isolation, particularly in rural communities. And so this, this um, Trans Equity Summit is an opportunity for people to come together and learn from other trans and gender nonconforming people. It's also an opportunity for allies to get involved and understand some of the issues and pressures that are impacting the trans and gender nonconforming communities. We try to um, host a job fair in conjunction with that event. Um, and, and Gender Justice has been a, a, a co-sponsor of the Transgender Equity Summit in the past. So I, I definitely wanna uh, say thank you uh, and look forward to a continuing um, relationship in that regard. Um, and hopefully we can include um, the global um, rights for women uh, in, in, in sponsorship of that work as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I see in the um, chat, you know, the project that I was able to initiate at the University of Minnesota and that I'm really proud of. Uh, it's probably one of the proudest things I've done in my life. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, right up there with being elected to uh, represent my community um, in, the, in these most pressing and dire times to be an elected official right now. It's a really tough job. Oh, but, but talking to 198 uh, 
gender nonconforming, transgender, uh, gender fluid, gender fabulous, gender creative, gender expressive um, people um, was the highlight of, of my life thus far. And being able to, to, to hear those stories was an honor, but not only to hear them, but to document them and, uh, and then um, preserve them at the University of Minnesota for, for generations to come to be able to access those stories, um, those true to life stories um, of the, you know, Jess, you talked about how diverse the trans community is. Um, this project represents that diversity fully uh, in terms of ethnic diversity. It was over 55% people of color. Um, which is unheard of in you know almost any kind of survey work that that happens, um, but you know we had disabled trans people. We had ages ranging from eighteen to um, ninety three, um, Somali trans people, um, undocumented uh, trans identified people. Uh, so the diversity of that project um, and the diversity of thought uh, that was captured in that project is, is a resource that I will continue to be proud of Thank for years, years to come. Thank you for that, Andrea. If we want to take some questions, we have to stop here. Uh, so huge thanks to you, Andrea, mm -hmm. for you know, not only uh, your being here with us today, but also just the incredible work you've done. Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to say one quick thing, you know, just the, the human right to self-identification, just in, in the integrity of all peoples, when we're oppressing, if we can lift the oppressions of the most marginalized, it, it will lift all of us Absolutely. this way. I, I think this is the, the power of the work that you're all doing, and I'm so grateful. Yeah, thank you all. Uh, we have some nice comments in the chat about uh, being a fantastic panel. Um, there's a great question, Jess and Aaron, how does gender justice share its lessons learned and expertise with those in other countries? Like this. Jess and I have only known gender justice for two years. Um, so the first I'll say is that, you know, I have done a few panels with uh, like international panels. And I certainly think that our, our groundbreaking legal work serves as a model for um, ways to use the law to expand protections to LGBTQIA women and femmes. Um, but Jess, I'll let you, cause you unmuted too, but that's that's all I have. We're still state-based, you know, we're trying to like expand to the region. So. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, so if you like what they're saying, <laughs> reach out. Um, I so yeah, we haven't like like Aaron said, we're 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 fairly new to the organization. The organization's about ten years old, and we do focus on Minnesota. I have had you know I've learned about what's going on UN wise from from folks that I've worked with on other issues who are like, oh, this this happened at the women's convention. It was really bad. Here's what. I, so we try to to on a like one on one <laughs> level like keep in touch with folks, like share what we're seeing with other state-based and national groups. We try to be on um, 
policy calls and other types of calls with organizations doing similar work. And um, so we we do it a little ad hoc like mm -hmm. that. We, we'd be happy to, to talk to anyone who wanted to um, share information about our, our organization in other countries where they're looking or, you know, places in other countries where they're looking to, to start something kind of like what we do. We'd, we'd be happy to talk to anyone, but unfortunately, I don't think we've done a ton of outreach, like international outreach. Double your staff. Yeah. <laughs> so much work to do. Well, uh, we're definitely at the end of our time, and I wish we could take more questions. Um, I know that we have a special treat uh, from Andrea. So, Cheryl. Uh, yes. Yes. So we're uh, we're just so grateful. As I said before, I don't want to go on and on, but I just can't tell you how grateful we are, and all to our, to all our participants for being here. And I also want to thank my colleagues Pat and Nazda Wazirzada for all their um, work in making sure these things go smoothly for us with our Valiant Voices conversation series. Uh, we've, there's lots of links in the chat. You can see, you can Google gender justice, um, support Andrea, uh, support global rights for women. Your contribution to us contributes to advocates working around the globe, centering survivors' voices as a means to achieve systemic and legal change on violence against women and girls. And now Andrea is going to share with us a poem. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much. And before I jump into the, the poem, I do want to just answer a question in the chat about the, the yeah. benefits of uh, racial equity assessment tools. Yes, they work at the city of Minneapolis. We use a racial equity impact assessment to, um, to be completed for every decision that we make, uh, every dollar that we spend. I think they are fabulous. And I think every organization should be using it as they're making decisions about how resources are distributed in their communities. The poem I'm gonna share is called A Requiem for the Queers or Why We Wear the Color Purple. It is from my book um, titled The Tea Is Not Silent, which is available on Amazon. And uh, A Requiem for the Queers or Why We Wear the Color Purple. We wear purple because all queers deserve a royal because it speaks volumes to those who claim they are colorblind and it connects us to an ancient cultural legacy. We wear purple because Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two stars, street transvestite action revolutionaries wore purple when they marched at Stonewall. We wear purple for all the queers who died on June 24, 1973, in New Orleans, when a bigoted homophobe sprayed Ronzanol lighter fluid on the stairs and tossed the match, and the ensuing flames traveled to the upstairs lounge, killing 32 people just four years after Stonewall. We wear purple for all the queer and questioning youth that will sleep under a bridge or trade sex for a place to stay tonight. We wear purple for the indigenous two-spirit people representing our struggle on the daily. 
We wear purple because radical women of color feminism shapes our mindset and thought process, offering critical resistance to the prison industrial complex, male patriarchy, and religious subjugation. We wear purple because we have to rewrite the narrative of what is and who is a woman. We wear purple because the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality is the street we live on and we can't move even if we wanted to. We have to act against what is considered normal. All of y'all can go out and get married now, but I can't even vote because my ID does not match up to the person standing in the ballot box. All of y'all can go out and get married now, but I still have to suffer a urinary tract infection because I can't go to the bathroom in some public spaces. All of y'all can go and get married now, but Cece McDonald was locked up in the men's prison at the St. Cloud Correctional Facility for defending herself from racist, transphobic, and homophobic attacks while George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin, is still walking around a free man with his gun in his waistband. All of y'all can go and get married now. And believe me, I am truly happy, for it means that we have moved a little closer to a more just, more righteous society, but we still have a long way to go. The personal is political. We wear purple for Miss Major and the Transgender Intersex Justice Project. My homegirl from Chicago who marched at Stonewall too and is still putting in revolutionary work for the trans brothers and trans sisters online. We wear purple for Leslie Feinberg and Kate Bornstein, two transgender warriors. We will never forget what they taught us about who we are and what we are and how beauty is our birthright too. I wear purple for my people, my beautiful transgender people. And what if love was the most powerful word in the ethos. Love, 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 <laughs> love. And what if my transgender people were the embodiment of that love, representing everything and nothing? We wear purple because Elton John sang and you can tell everybody this is your song. I know it might sound simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind if I put down in the words how wonderful life is when queers are in the world. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Andrea.
we have to wrap up. That was gorgeous. Thank you all so much.